Welcome back to Balancing Chaos with Gretchen and Kelly, except Kelly's not here, so I'm speaking for her. We recorded this interview a few days ago with Jane Drichter, who is the co-founder of the Global Motherhood Initiative and the author of The Essential Home Birth Guide, and it was an amazing conversation, and we got so wrapped up in our conversation, we forgot to do an intro. So here you go. Enjoy the interview with Jane. Today, we are joined by Jane Drichter, who is the co-founder of the Global Motherhood Initiative. Is that accurate, Jane? That is, in fact, accurate. All right. So go ahead and tell us about what it is that you do, because it's fascinating and you can tell it better than either of us could. (laughs) Well, don't know about that. But Global Motherhood Initiative was basically um, a response to a trip that I took while I was consulting for another organization to Iraq last year. So I was working in the Kurdistan region, just doing uh, baseline surveys for reproductive health, for reproductive minimums, essential service packages, that type of thing. And I was working in a Yazidi refugee camp. I don't know if um, if you're familiar with the Yazidi story or if your listeners will be, but just to recap really quickly, the Yazidi are a minority who live in in Iraq, uh, there's some in Syria, there's some in Iran, there's been a little bit of diaspora up to Georgia. There's actually, um, uh, strangely enough, a large city population in Memphis, Tennessee, which is odd to me, but that's that's where they ended up. <laughs> and so uh, Daesh, ISIS, came in in August of 2014 at, with a mandate to basically destroy the Yazidi population. And the reason for that is 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 long and sordid and goes back centuries, but basically the Yazidis have always been a minority religion in the Middle East. And they, um, their kind of worldview is that God created the universe and then he kind of went off for a coffee and left it alone to kind of run itself with the help of some angels. And one of the main angels is the peacock angel, and his name in Arabic translates very closely to the word for devil. So basically it's a semantic issue that's been going on for centuries. And because of this, they've been very marginalized. And so Daesh came in basically to to cause a genocide. I mean, they've, they've been very open about this, that they wanted to destroy the Yazidi people. So they marched into these villages. They took many of the women, the young women, as sex slaves. They called them wives, but they're sex slaves, and many of them have been trafficked into other places. They killed most of the men, took the young boys to be child soldiers, and everybody else kind of literally ran for the hills. So they ran into a mountain called Shingal Mountain, and they stayed there for a few weeks. It was August, so extraordinarily hot, terrible, terrible situations. Uh, many of them died. And then the coalition forces, which at this point were basically the U.S., U.K., Australia, France, carpet bombed and made a um, kind of a safe path for them to run. So they ran off the mountain into this village town called Dehuk, which is where I was. And they were put into internally displaced persons camps, IDP camps. And basically just sat there. And they've been there ever since. So the things in Iraq with Daesh have come down a bit. People are starting to go home, but they're still not, they're, there's nothing there. There's no infrastructure for them. So so that's a big issue. So a lot of the so, girls that were trafficked. Sorry? Can I just ask a quick question, just for clarification? Certainly. Okay. So the Daesh... Uh, sorry, that's that's the acronym in Arabic for ISIS, and I'm I'm sorry if I use those oh, okay. interchangeably. Okay. So, yeah. So, so ISIS, ISIS Daesh, yeah. took out the Azizi yeah, the villages. And, is, and, I know, and now this is going to sound like a crazy question, but hmm. 
I try to not think about ISIS because it stresses me out. But it is ISIS. I what's their belief? What's their religious belief? They're very very conservative Muslims. Okay. They're they're radical radicalized Muslims. So, so they didn't like that. They didn't the like that the exist. God. They didn't like that they that the angel name was similar to the devil. Right. Right. Okay. And it's been a problem for the past 6,000 years, to be honest. Um, Interesting. There's been lots of issues with the Yazidi, and they've just been very, very marginalized throughout their entire history, which is clearly insane. So um, mm-hmm. so they came to, to Dohuk, which is basically the same place that I was working, and I came into one of these internally displaced persons, IDP camps, and I always see everything through a midwifery lens. I'm a midwife by training. I also have a master's degree in global public health and policy. So I, I see everything through that kind of way of life. And I was mm-hmm. looking at all of these women, some of them who had escaped from ISIS as sex slaves. Some of them, if their parents or family had money, were able to hire smugglers to bring them out of captivity. And they would come to this IDP camp that I was in. There was already a small Yazidi population in Dohuk, in the town. So that was a logical place for them them to settle, for them to run to when, when all this went down. So I'm looking at all of this. I'm looking at these pregnant women. I'm looking at, at women in general. I'm looking at, at the oppression that they've, they've been through. And it was very interesting to me that while there was some maternity care in the camp, there was very little mental health care. And obviously, as as women, we can see that if we have a background in trauma, that horrible things have happened to us sexually for sexual violence, reproductive violence. As soon as you get pregnant, even if you're doing well, and even if it's in the context of a loving, defined, fantastic relationship, this is all going to come back up, right? There's there's no way to avoid the trauma that these women have been through. So I thought, right, well, why don't we put the mental health piece and the maternity piece together? And so that's Global Motherhood Initiative. We strive to serve women on both of those those ends of the spectrum, the, the mental health piece and the maternal health piece. So we're opening a clinic in this refugee camp, IDP camp, and that should be finished by the 1st of September. And we're going to have trained, compassionate, lovely midwifery care combined with local peer counselors. So these are people from the community who have also been clinically traumatized. The whole the whole community is traumatized, obviously. If someone tries to kill you, kind of does a number on your head, right? Mm. So we've got, we're, we're going to have local peer counselors. They're being trained by one of our partners called Network for Africa. And we're hooking them up with volunteer Western midwives just because there aren't enough midwives in the community to, to fill that capacity. And they're going to work together with these women all the way through their pregnancies and through the postpartum period. So we're, we're very excited to make that a kind of a sustainable piece of our, of our organization. And that's Global Motherhood Initiative. We're also starting another uh, project in Uganda following the same model as well. So that's us. And you've opened clinics in other countries before, haven't you? Or have you? Yeah. Or I, you've done, or, or, because I remember in, in the way that I know you, you talking about going overseas to provide midwife care. So was that part of this or was that the seed for Global Motherhood Initiative? That was the seed. I've been involved in, in overseas work for almost 10 years. I've worked in Uganda pretty steadily on and off for eight years. I've worked in the Philippines. I've worked in Greece and refugee camps there. I've worked in the U.K., um, 
Yes. Yeah, so so I've, I had a long kind of history of, of international work. So it wasn't a massive jump to want to kind of formalize this all into, into this one project. I did swear that I would never start an NGO, a non-governmental organization. <laughs> I, I literally, after working in this field for 10 years, I was really, really concerned with not doing that. <laughs> I mean, I, I swore on my father's grave. I swore in different languages. And any any definition of the word, I swear I won't do this, is what I did. So that's funny, because here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you end up, how did, I've never heard of the Yazidi population. Me either. So mm-hmm. how did, is it, how did you find out about this tribe? And how did you find your calling to go help them? Yeah, it's actually, that's actually funny. And I was just saying to my, to my husband this morning, so this, the genocide all started in 2014, August of 2014. In August of 2014, I was actually on, on a religious pilgrimage of my own, hiking across Spain along the um, Santiago de Compostela trail. So I actually heard nothing about this because I was off in my own world with very little wired in this. Uh, but but they have always been a persecuted minority. The, the UN has recognized them as a, as a persecuted minority. So they've always been there. Uh, I just honestly think that perhaps it didn't get through to the Western media. I mean, I hate to be media bashing. Everybody seems to do that. And I feel a bit sorry for the media, actually. But um, I just think it didn't really get out as much in the U.S. Uh, I have very strong ties to the UK as well. I hold dual citizenship and we've, I've studied there and everyone in the UK seemed to know about them. So I think it might just have been a US blind spot to be honest. So do you have a grant or how do you have the funding to travel to the countries and then also to open the <laughs> clinic? <laughs> yeah, well that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> just getting by on a wing and a prayer like everybody else. Um, to be honest, oh, a lot of it is self-funded. We sold our house a bit ago, and we've used a lot of the money from that to seed this this project. We are basically primarily small grants, not massive grants. We just, a lot of the grants that you apply for, you have to have a very large operating budget, and we do not, which is a strength, but at the same time does cut us out of a lot of funding. And we're always accepting donations, so spread the word. <laughs> well, we will absolutely have the link in our show notes and on Facebook when we post this and everything. Um, you mentioned your husband. Is he going with you? Ah, uh, no. Bless him. <laughs> he stays here. He's, um, he's extremely tolerant of my eccentricities. So can I? So one of the one of the things that Kelly and I started this podcast about was because we are of very different religions, and that I am an atheist and she is not. She's working out exactly what she is. <laughs> she's a Christian, <laughs> but she's working out which flavor. Goal, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> so can I? So you said you're on your own uh, pilgrimage. Can I ask what religion you are? Yes, I'm Anglican. I identify as Anglican. Oh, that was, see, we have been put out a list. That that was one that was on the list, Kelly, that would be a good match for you. Because we're trying <laughs> yes, to find absolutely. a good flavor for her because she's, she's a very, she's a, she's very socially, just, social justice minded. Mm-hmm. Ah, her, well, in the United States, it's the Episcopal Church. Check them out. They're, yeah. they're fabulous. Pretty cool. See, yeah. Oh, Gretchen, my atheist friend, cre- don't you worry, created a spreadsheet for me. <laughs> in excel of all the potential religions uh, we've got all the churches in the area we've got special notes on them some churches have gardens dogs um that's hilarious yeah and and i volunteered to go with her to be the objective observer so that i can tell her if <laughs> yeah there's no anything that's a good that... idea <laughs> because well, kelly's very the, positive um, so 
the Episcopal Church having a bit of a renaissance thanks to the royal wedding. So Michael Curry is our presiding bishop who spoke at the royal wedding and basically set some butts on fire. So that's kind of fun. Yes, <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, so how long will you be in Iraq? Uh, so I'm leaving on Monday and I'll be there for a little over a year. Wow. And are you, you, so are you from Seattle? Uh, no, I'm from England originally, and um, my family isn't, well, my mother is in St. Louis. Uh, my daughter goes to school, well, she just graduated, sorry, she'd kill me if she heard me say that. Uh, <laughs> she goes to, she went to uh, Utah State University in Logan, Utah, so we're kind of scattered. My, the rest of my family is back in England, and we're kind of all over the place. <laughs> so. Will, so when you go, will you make trips home to resupply, or are you planning on being there? For the entire year? No, I'll be there for the entire year. I actually have another job in Iraq as well. I'm also the country director for an organization called the Free Yazidi Foundation. And I got in touch with them whilst I was there last year doing other consulting work. And they very kindly have agreed to host our clinic in their compound in the camp. And then they offered me the job of country director as well. So I'm basically blending these two jobs into organizations. <laughs> Which is nice. So that's great. How exactly, how do you, and this sounds so basic, but (laughs) do you just go on like Expedia and buy a ticket to Iraq? How exactly do you get to go to Iraq? (laughs) It's actually, the the short answer is is yes. Not really Expedia though, because I go through the airlines (laughs) because I have to have every amount of protection available and you get more protection when you go through the airlines. But, Oh my goodness, it's hilarious. Every time I buy a ticket to Iraq, and there's been several times, uh, we always get a phone call from our bank. We get a phone call from the airlines back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone is very concerned about me going to Iraq. And I suspect they think that I'm part of ISIS. When we tried to open a bank account for the organization for Global Motherhood Initiative, we had a lot of trouble. We had to go to a couple of different banks before they would even agree to open an account for us because we work in Iraq. PayPal has big issues with people working in Iraq, and they've actually frozen assets on other organizations, frozen donations. I have, I have a colleague who works for uh, an organization called Nurture Project International, and they've got $5,000 worth of frozen assets in their PayPal account just because it all was going through the Iraq stuff. And no one really seems to like Iraq very much, strangely. So where I know, do you I know sleep? About, well, I know of a, so just on the bank thing, I heard, I know of a woman who I know on Twitter whose daughter, it, her name is Isis. And yeah. a relative sent money to buy a birthday present for her daughter Isis. So it said, here's 50 bucks for Isis. And this is like in the U.S. Oh. I, you, and that got frozen and they got investigated oh. because oh, they Christ. were like, she was like, no, she's <laughs> 10 years old. <laughs> wow. That's an I'm unfortunate name, though. But my goodness. It wasn't unfortunate when she named her 10 years it ago. It is today, though. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's where do a you lovely s- goddess. <laughs> which is why I like, which is why I think, is that why you say Daesh or is that because is that what they're known culturally there? Because I've, I've seen those different That's what names. Yeah. yeah. And I've thought we should That's go with the Daesh as- thing. <laughs> You yeah. know, just to save yeah. these. Yeah, maybe these I should just say kids. that. <laughs> get away with everything. <laughs> but so where is, do you stay? At this point, we have to we have to just uh, have long conversations with everybody officially. Uh, you should see it when I'm trying to get back into the U.S. That's entertaining. Oh, I bet. So, oh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I'm on every list 
imaginable. But that's okay. <laughs> I just see it as an educational thing, and I show them the pictures on my phone. And I mean, by the end of it, I've pretty much convinced everyone to go there for a holiday. It's a lovely place in <laughs> minus four. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> so where? So it is a lovely place. So where do you stay? How do you ensure you're safe? Oh, I have, well, first of all, for, for my organization, I have a 29-page security <laughs> document. But uh, for myself, we have a lovely volunteer house because we do have Western volunteers coming in. I need to ensure that they're safe. And it's in a gated community with a guard. It's about 20 minutes from the camp. It's it's quite safe. And we're in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. So it's, um, it's the northern region. It's a semi-autonomous state. Uh, so it's it's not quite as as oppressive and, and dangerous as you might think. The people are lovely. I, I mean, I could not ask for more support in the local community. They're they're absolutely amazing. So interesting. So some people, I hear an argument a lot of time when when um, in global initiatives such as this, they'll say, and when you know, you're not from the United States, so. This may not pertain to you as much, but some may say, okay, well, we have similar issues here in the U.S. Why not do something, do something <laughs> oh like this here? I get here. this all the time. I get this okay, all the right. Time. I figured you would. <laughs> uh, there's there's a, a beautiful friend of my, of my 85-year-old mother's who always wants me to go to Appalachia. Like she's, she's constantly saying, Jane, go to Appalachia. Why aren't you working in Appalachia? I'm not quite sure why she's glommed on to Appalachia. But that's definitely a thing. Um, I think mainly the reason that I don't stay here, and this is taking out the, the political climate right now, which in my opinion is abhorrent, and it's yeah. difficult to get up and actually read the headlines every day for me personally. Yes, yes. But, too. But Damn. taking that aside, I, you know, I've been doing this before Trump, before before any of this, so so that's just kind of a bonus, making me happy to leave at this point. But. Um, I always have considered myself to be kind of a world citizen, and that is such a cliche, and I hate even using that. I need to come up with a better a better thing. But my parents traveled extensively uh, when, when they were young, which was unusual in post-war Europe. I mean, nobody from the north of England went to Paris, went to Spain, went to, like nobody did that. And they, they did. And so and as I came along, they kind of took me with them, and we just went all of these places. And it's never occurred to me to have a particular allegiance to a particular country. I have allegiance to causes. I really am offended by ISIS. They offend me. I don't think people should kill people like that. I don't think women should be taken into sex slavery. It annoys me. So I feel like we should do something about that. <laughs> so I basically yeah. go where where the cause is. Mm. I think, what it, and what it sounds like too is that you're seeing the area of greatest need, but also you have an amount of flexibility. For instance, Kelly, or, Kelly and I have young kids. We couldn't mm -hmm. say, okay, we're going to go to Iraq and we'll see you in a year. Like we couldn't do that. Yeah. But where your yeah. family, you have a, your daughter's grown, you have the flexibility and the understanding. So it's also, you know, you know, Kelly and I could go to Appalachia for a month if we had to. You know, you could donate small chunks of yeah. time, but to commit to a greater cause, it takes a certain, it takes a really unique set of circumstances to be able to do that. So I can so I tell your Appalachian friend that. <laughs> yeah. And we've kind of engineered our lives around what I do. We have family core values. And part of that is, is a lot of anti-oppression work. My daughter is uh, 
So she, like I said, she just graduated and she's gotten a job being an advocate for, for teenagers with sexual trauma. And, and so it's, it kind of runs in the family. Like we just, we just do what we do basically. And, and our, we enjoy our time together so much more, I think, because we do do these projects and then we come back together and then we go away and then we do these projects and we come back together. I first took Anna to Africa when she was 15. So I also just slept her along and she'll be joining me in Iraq at some point, I'm sure, uh, because that's just who, who she is. <laughs> but yeah, we, we just really, it sounds so corny, but we really make an effort to live our values in our everyday life. And I do have a unique skill set that has been cultivated not to sound like Liam Neeson. I'm not going to like be all taken in our thing, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I have a clinical background and then I also have a policy background and I did that on purpose and my family supported that. So, so even though it's me going out into the world, I'm literally taking them with me when I go and I know that I couldn't do it without them. My mother is, is hilarious. My 85 year old mother, she, um, she gets all kinds of flack for what I do. <laughs> That's for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, you know, isn't it dangerous? Aren't you afraid she's going to be kidnapped? Aren't you afraid she's going to, you know, what, whatever. You can literally be hit by a bus. And I say that because my husband is in fact a bus driver. So I know that people are hit <laughs> by buses. So. Hopefully not by his. <laughs> yes. So there's a little intersection of our, <laughs> of our death wishes, if you will. But yeah, and it just, you just got to keep a sense of humor about it, don't you? You just got to get on with it. And I, I mean, I do think, it is very easily easy to keep yourself focused on your own community or your own circumstance or even your own country. But the more you, like you said yourself, your what did you say your master's degree is in? It's in global, global public health and policy. Okay, ex- global public health. So the more aware you are of the world and how we're all connected, I think the more outraged you can become about what happens in other countries, even if you don't live there, because ultimately it does affect all of us. Uh, we're we're one world you know one thing I I agree I I just saw this like literally this was two days ago on Twitter and I just looked it up while Kelly was talking but when you talked about how you live your values and uh, the Pew Research Group who I love unconditionally did a study and released an announcement and so they asked Americans if the U.S. had a responsibility to accept refugees. And the response was that no group, racial, by age, religious, or political, was less supportive of that idea than white evangelical Protestants. Wow. Oh, I saw that research. I, I, I saw the headline, and I didn't read the article because I thought it might make me really angry, so I chose not to. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, there the you Washington, go. And, and then and mm-hmm. a, the link that I had shared came from the Washington Post, so I'll put that in our show notes. But the, mm-hmm. And as somebody who's an atheist, you know, and Kelly and I have discussed this before and that in some ways I tend to be more Christian in quotes than some Christians I know because of, you know, if you look at the basic tenets of faith of being kind to others and, you know, where, where I had, where I had food and you had none or you were a stranger and I welcomed you and those kinds of things. And, and I will never understand how the, how a, a religious group can unify to keep people out and to prevent people from, having the things that I'm pretty sure that the Bible thought you should have. Right? Isn't it weird? It's It's so so incredibly bizarre. And in no way do I ever want to think that, you know, religion is is the only way forward. I mean, really, honestly, 
being a good right. person is independent of religion. Religion is, mm-hmm. is for yourself. It's personal. It's where you draw your own strength. And other people have different ways of drawing their own strength. So they can go out in the world and do good. It's got nothing to do with it, to be honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were in, um, my husband and I actually just took a vacation in Jamaica. We got back a couple, a couple days ago. And I had to force myself not to look beyond the surface of the resort we were staying at because mm-hmm. it it's it goes into this global issue of well they have some significant issues um and challenges in jamaica and you know we could all just turn an eye to it but it if, does affect all of us um but anyhow we met this woman in a hot tub oh and she was just the, so wonderful so oh what did she tell me she liked to be referred to as a caribbean woman of the caribbean anyway she was black but she said she she said she said um she said that it irritates her how every black person is just called a black person because they all have different um heritages and they all want to be referred to in different ways but anyway the ultimate point is that she told us the story about how her brother-in-law is a um man of color but he is the head surgeon for this very specialized um gastric procedure and Hmm. an an evangelical christian had come in and and didn't want him to operate so when he came down to the room to introduce himself he he told the chief of surgery i don't want that man to operate on me because i want basically i want you to find me a white doctor and they went all around it and and anyway anyway he he did end up letting him operate and the procedure went well and everything was lovely but i just thought I don't understand that at all. I mean, it's, <laughs> and that's why I, that's why I've been going through a little bit of conflict with religion specifically because the idea to not let someone operate on you because of the color of their skin and the idea to say, we're not going to help refugees or that we're not going to worry about uh, pollution in the oceans <laughs> or, or, or environmental uh, awareness. Like we're having or guns a, or guns, you know, it's, it seems <laughs> right? kind of, Oh, that's, it the, seems, that's the ultimate one, isn't it? Yeah. It just seems really wild to me. And I mean, we had an issue in our own neighborhood about this chemicals on the playground and people were attacking people about the type of pesticide. And and then people are like, well, I don't care. I don't have kids. Did you see some of those comments? And it's just so interesting to me how we can be so focused on our own little bubble as if these other factors don't affect us in the whole world it's so interesting isn't it it's so interesting the paths that people choose and what they choose to include in their lives and what they include to ex- exclude in their lives I, I really do think it's fascinating so you're as a woman's healthcare midwife um provider there was also recent research showing that the u.s has declining uh mortality maternal mortality rates mm-hmm. you medical people yeah, we're understand terrible. that more we're like as bad terrible. as third world countries. Definitely, definitely. Um, and that's, people always ask me why, and the answer is always structural institutionalized racism. Everything goes back to that. I mean, every the United States was built on this, and so it permeates every single layer of our public life and our private life, I'm sure. So I, I, that's where you have to start the systemic changes, and it's so incredibly difficult. But not impossible, not impossible. There's been uh, really good research done on the centering pregnancy model, just taking reproductive health as, as an example, because that's, like I said, that's my jam. And 
I don't know if you're familiar with Centering Pregnancy Model or not, but it was founded in the 90s by a certified nurse midwife named Sharon Rising, who is amazing. And it basically takes groups. Instead of going to individual appointments, women come to groups and they they form community bonds. they, They do a lot of their own care, to be honest. And then there's a health education piece that's given by a midwife. So we're adopting that model with Sharon Rising's blessing in Iraq and hopefully Uganda soon as well, where it will be group care. And we think that that's a good model for us just because it it it, it just informs the social cohesion of the Yazidi. I mean, they, they're just so wounded right now and so traumatized. Every single person in this camp is clinically traumatized. So... It's if they can come together and support each other without my interference, that's the best bit ever. So we're having these four training peer counselors and they're going to be running the groups, the pregnancy groups. And I look for really great things from it because, you know, people have to empower themselves. We can provide the space, but when the community comes together to support these women, which it has, I I think it's going to be fantastic. I'm really, really looking forward to the outcomes from that. Well, we had a... I don't know if that was that specific model, but where I used to, I used to live in the southern part of the state, and my friend attended a nurse midwifery clinic that did the group visits, and it is incredibly powerful because it's so de- powerful, right? You develop a network of people who are at the same place in life with you in terms of their mm-hmm. pregnancy, and then afterward, they all did the breastfeeding group together. And then she had mom friends who had kids the same age. And it it makes sense. And I actually think we should consider it for other chronic conditions or maybe even teen visits. Oh, they are. Centering is doing that. They have a... um, Yeah, makes sense. They have a new group called... Yeah, called Centering Global. And Mm -hmm. they've they've worked it... Or Sorry, sorry, I'm wrong. Group Care Global. And they've used it for diabetes and a couple of other chronic conditions. And yeah, it's, it's gone over really, really well. We're social creatures, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're exactly. all social creatures by nature. Even the most introverted of us, of which I am one, uh, still gain a lot of benefits from being around people that are going through the same situation. It's just human nature. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, when that's how I know you is from a message board. And when I have to, when I meet people in real life or have to introduce them, I'll say, these are the people who taught me how to be, we learned how to become mothers together on the internet mm-hmm. because Great. there Our was no, friends. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because there was no, there was no set group center model like that. I actually, um, I work at a university and with my second pregnancy, I was, I had not worked there with the first one, with the second one I did. And our nursing department, their OB class made me their guinea pig. And so I would go up to the lab and they would find the heartbeat and they would measure the fundal height. And then I took a different student every time to my OB checkups. So my husband never went because I, I was kind of like, he doesn't need to come. You know, it's going to be 15 minutes in and out. So I had a different like 18 year old girl with me at every appointment. And I finally had to like I they were kind of giving me the side eye. Like, why do you keep bringing these people that you obviously don't really know to your appointments? And so I finally put it. So I put it on my on my record that like because sometimes they would show up before me, so that was on there that she works at Hassan, she's bringing a student, she's letting a student observe, and then I when I actually delivered, I 
our their clinical days were Monday and Wednesday. I was induced. And when they went in, I was induced on a Monday. So when the clinical instructor gave out assignments and they were like, who like who's on the floor? And they were like, OK, we have Gretchen in room one. And like the whole group cheered and the the <laughs> clinical instructor was different. Like she was like, what are you who what? Yeah. <laughs> so I had I had a student there when, you know, and I had a traditional medical American birth, yeah. but they were there with the scalp monitor then they came in two days later. There was one male nurse and no woman would let him do the postpartum check. I let him come in and check my uterus and all of that. <laughs> so I'm all about bringing, you know, letting people learn about anything. But the other part, one of our friends is expecting and is going through a midwife practice locally. And she was saying, oh, it's so great. Every appointment is an hour. And I said, what mm-hmm. would you do for an-? and I honestly and I'm very, you know, kind of all business when I had my OB appointments. They'd go in, they'd check the heartbeat, they'd pee in the cup, check your blood pressure, how you doing, everything's great, okay, great, bye. So like, I don't even think I could have mm-hmm. a conversation for an hour, but I could 100% have had a conversation for an hour with a group of people in the same stage of pregnancy. Yeah. If sure. it was just me and a, if sure. it was just me and a care provider, I'd be like, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> oh, I, I think oh, every, no. th- an hour is, I mean, there is so much to know and they don't do a good yeah. job. I, I, my appointments were maybe less than 10 minutes and I did a lot of research on my own and I always thought I can't believe they're not teaching women this because I'm an informed person right same and, here. but think about all the people who are not informed and this is they're getting the same prenatal care if not worse than what I was getting which I think mine was all subpar and, and so it's it is unfortunate. So- I'm not surprised by our outcomes it's so funny to hear you say that because I when I was practicing in the U.S. Yeah, all of my appointments were also an hour. <laughs> all of my so what do you talk about then, for an hour? Because I was really like, I, but, but again, I was one who was obviously Googling everything and I had every book and I was a self-researcher. Right. And I love people like that so much because that actually informs your conversation. You can talk about more things with people mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can mm-hmm. get more in depth. Yeah, it's, it's more of a... Um, there's certainly a business aspect to it, and there's information that has to be conveyed for people to have a safe birth. But I always loved, and I haven't practiced in the U.S. for, for quite a while, but um, I just really loved getting to know everybody's families. I mean, I can tell you the names of my clients' dogs 10 years later, literally. Mm. That's how much of an impression every single client made on me. And I'm not alone. I mean, in other midwives as well, this is exactly, exactly the model. But I chose the centering model for this project simply because I don't have the language skills and I'm only one person. Mm. So I can't see everybody for an hour in this camp. Mm. I can see some of them for an hour. The, the ones that are going to need individualized care. Somebody comes up with gestational diabetes. Somebody needs their lab results interpreted. for the, Yeah, those types of things are going to be individualized and, and that conversation has to happen. But but you're exactly right. People are also going to be, particularly in a culture that is not my own, much more free with with their peers and their cohort. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. that's just life, right? You mm-hmm. relate to people better who are more like you. So that's re- another reason that we chose for this model. How do you how do you prevent yourself from burnout? Because I <laughs> it just you know yeah. the circumstances that you're going or that and that that you have seen. Even provider, you know, providers in the United States, we see, they see, I mean, I shouldn't say we because I'm not a provider, but they do see, you know, there are, you know, unfortunate situations. There's 
rape, incest, sex. I mean, we have sex slaves here in Bangor. It's terrible. I, I think people, mm-hmm. I think the general public is very unaware of, what, of the reality of what's going on in a lot of these areas. But particularly you're going to a place where that's all that you're going to hear and see. So how do you cope with not letting yourself get, you know, the caregiver role strain, basically? I am extremely good at putting boundaries up. And when I'm leading a project, so in this case, I'll be leading a project with some volunteer Western midwives who are there to to provide support, uh, a couple of administrative volunteers. So there will be a team. I am absolutely strict on leaving your work at work. I mean, there. I mean, obviously, I carry a pager, and obviously, people get in contact with me at any moment. But we stop work at six o'clock. There's there's nothing around that that is going to stop it. I will not allow members of my team to be answering emails at 10 p.m. It just, and I won't allow myself to do it either. You just have to be as disciplined in that area as you are in every other area of your life. Otherwise, it will take over. It will completely yeah. take over. But a part of that is just experience, too. I mean, when you first get into international global health, you are so passionate and you're so excited and you're so excited to be there. But I think that was burned out of me about 10 years ago. So at this point, we go in, we do our jobs, we're extremely available, extremely accessible. And then we're not, to be honest. Um, I have a whiteboard with my team every, every morning and I write, we have a meeting, I write down their goals on the whiteboard. We have a meeting in the afternoon, we see what we've accomplished and then we leave it and go out for some kebabs which <laughs> just you just have to do it are your so your other caregivers are they westerners are there midwives from the azedi tribe the, itself how do you um i assume nice and i assume you you mentioned the language barrier so i assume you have interpreters as well we do we do and i'm studying really hard <laughs> So hopefully at some point my Kurdish will be intelligible to to a native speaker. At this point, it's probably not. Uh, yes, yeah, so we accept both midwifery volunteers and also administrative volunteers. And the reason that we accept the midwifery volunteers, obviously it would be ideal to have people from the community do this care. And if I can find someone, I'm happy to hire them. However, there is just no capacity. Capacity building is a huge, massive thing, and that's why we need to. That's why I'm so excited about the peer counselors. But there's just not enough healthcare professionals. Iraq has been at war with various people for 15 years, within recent memory. Obviously, there's been other wars, but there is just there's not enough people. There's not enough healthcare providers, particularly on the mental health side of it. I was talking with a colleague of mine who I met in another camp, and first of all, he's a man. So a lot of the women are not going to come to him because culturally that's not appropriate, particularly when you're talking about sexual violence and this type of thing. He's working an 80-hour week split between six different camps, and that's one person. There's just not enough. So that's why we do – I would love, love, love to put out a call for, <laughs> for any midwives, family practice docs, uh, maternity nurses, anyone who would like to have a chat about working in Iraq or Uganda because we're starting that project up as well. Uh, to get in contact with me through the website, it's very difficult to recruit for Iraq. I'll be honest with you. When Western people hear that word, well, I'll ask you, what, when I say the word Iraq, what, what do you think of? Just straight up. War. Bombings. Yeah. yeah. Like people in the streets with guns, mm-hmm. you know, straight mm-hmm. up everything that we see on the media when they say Iraq. Yeah. 
And that's hard to say to people, oh, and, and this will be a lovely experience. <laughs> Please come over and try not to get blown up. Like it's, it's, it's hard to work past that and, and get to people's hearts where they can actually see what's really happening as opposed to what, what we've shown, which is not to say that it's completely wrong. I mean, I was in Mosul last year and there were bombs dropping and there were snipers on the roof and there was all this nonsense crap. It was nuts but, and really annoying. But, um, but where we are is, is fairly safe. I, I will never say 100%, but fairly safe. Uh, we do have extremely good security measures in place that have been informed by uh, security specialists. So we feel fairly good about about our security systems there. And the people are lovely. I just have to keep saying this, that the Iraqi people and the Kurdish people are absolutely insanely fantastic. So what would it take or what, what would it take to, um, get in a training program established over there? And for providers, what are their laws? In Iraq for well, medical training. Well, they're, they're, a bit, they're a bit loosey-goosey at the moment. Uh, I've done right. a lot of training for, in fact, that's what I was in Mosul for, is we were doing training for, this is for when I was working for another organization, but we're, there are mandate is breastfeeding and emergencies. This is for Nurture Project International was the name of the organization I was working with. So I don't know if this actually got out in the Western media. My husband says it didn't, but towards the end of the battle for Mosul, Daesh had uh, imposed an internal embargo, so there was no food getting into the city of Mosul. It was blocked, so people were starving. So there was a famine. And like, did you hear about this? Did, did, have you heard? I never heard any of that. Okay. Well, there you go. I don't. I, so, yeah, um, I, I don't think so. I feel like, I feel like there's, we okay. So per, in our house, we purposely don't watch TV news because of because no, I have well, that's reasonable. young kids, um, and it's I get a lot of news from social media and Washington Post and things like that. So mm-hmm. I, but I can't say that I know about the famine in Mosul and I would consider myself yeah. fairly mm-hmm. well-educated on current events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty tragic. So Daesh at this point was in control of basically all of Mosul, more so in East Mosul than West Mosul. So it's divided by the Tigris River. And that was also crazy to me when I saw the Tigris River, right? Because we all, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, this cradle of civilization. Like, it's nuts. Exactly. The, the, that is the, there. the it's Fertile crazy. Crescent. Is that, isn't that near there? <laughs> so, the fertile Crescent? <laughs> yeah, it's like the Tigris and the Euphrates. And, oh, my God, there it is. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so it's very cool. Uh, and I think we're Facebook friends, Gretchen. You can you can look on my, my Facebook profile and you can see a lot of pictures of, of where I was and what we were doing and pictures of, of the river. But it was it was just a bit there was this horrible famine and, and babies were dying because their mothers didn't have breastfeeding skills. And we all know that breastfeeding is so much more complicated than what, you know, shoving your yes. baby onto your breast. Obviously. Mm-hmm. It's natural, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. <laughs> so mm-hmm. and also a lot of the, the traditional knowledge has been lost. So in our culture it was lost because our mothers and grandmothers probably formula fed for all of the reasons, you know, the uh, but in Iraq, it, the people had just been killed. There was just no knowledge. So you had these babies whose mothers didn't have the support to breastfeed, and there's a famine. So there's no formula milk. There's no breast milk substitutes getting in or out. They were basically feeding their children watered-down ketchup just to keep mm-hmm. them alive. They were mm-hmm. boiling cardboard to just get a little bit of whatever nutrient could happen. It's really bad, right? 
So obviously that is, in fact, offensive, and we didn't mm-hmm. like that. So we went in, and we were doing breastfeeding, really technical breastfeeding support for providers that had chosen to remain in Mosul. So the battle for Mosul lasted about 18 months, and most of the providers left. And if you've got money, you've got whatever, you can get out. And the doctors and the midwives obviously were a, a, an economically advantaged class, but, but honestly, many of them chose to stay. And they chose to stay with their people and they chose to to just lend support wherever they could, but they didn't have the knowledge. So we're in there doing really technical stuff with them as the bombs were dropping around us, which was really annoying because, you know, the electricity kept going out and you know, we have to yell, our mics went out. And, uh, so anyway, so so that was the, that's kind of the technical aspect of, of what we were doing and, and, I think we did some really good work there, and I hope that uh, that the, the the mothers who are breastfeeding now, because of what we did, can now pass that down to their people, and we can like make the chain of knowledge available again when it was broken. And we've gotten these gotten these lady population in our camps too, because a lot of the women who had this knowledge were either trafficked or killed. So now we have young girls, because culturally they, they marry young, they have children young, 16, 7, 18, that's just how they are. Uh, it, they, they don't have the knowledge. So also postpartum support is an incredibly, incredibly important part of, of our work there. And I think if we can access the traditional birth attendants in the camps, so you have the old Yazidi women that have been delivering babies forever, learned it from their mother who learned it from their mother who learned it from their mother, they're very active still in the camp situation. And so Looking into that network, which we've been successful in doing, is also a large part of our work. Do you work with, like, I feel like when we think about these global healthcare models, we, I, like Doctors Without Borders is one that you mm-hmm. hear about a lot. Is that, um, do, do they work in Iraq or are they? They do. They don't work where we work, but they okay. definitely would. Uh, Médecins Sans Frontières definitely has has a presence there. And I love them. They, they do great work. Yeah, and this sounds like almost like in what you're doing is sounds like a very focused, specialized um, you're fo- very focused and specialized on what you do and, and who you're doing it with and for which is really interesting. And I'm we, sure it's- I have found over the past 10 years working in global health that Mission, we call it mission creep, like you're doing something and then right. something else also sounds good and then something else leads from that. And it's it's very tempting to follow down all those rabbit holes and try to, to do everything. But we're very small and I've done this on purpose. And we are very, very focused. Yes, we support pregnant and postpartum women with maternity care and mental health support. That's what we do. I think that's how you stay successful. In, in anything, I hope so. it's, it's <laughs> being very focused. What is it? it's? There's a book even on it. It's the one thing I think. It, we'll find it. Yeah, it's something that. like if you up. focus on, if you put all your energy and focus on one thing, you'll be so much more successful. I remember reading a book, and I will have to look it up, but it was about. Uh, they ended up being, I think, partners in healthcare, but it was an author who followed a doctor from Boston who did a ton of work in Haiti and being... Oh, it's Paul Farmer. Paul Farmer, him, yes. yeah. He, partners in health. Yeah, absolutely. No, he's amazing. And and the book and the book was written by 
uh, a nonfiction writer who's written all different kinds of books. And so I didn't really read it because of the subject, but because of the author, because mm. I liked his other work. And, I'll ha- I, and I'm blanking on his name. But it was really fascinating just to hear about how to even imagine what other healthcare systems or lack of look like Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we're so quick here to complain about a long wait at the doctor's office like the appointment said 11 15 and it is now 11 25 and i haven't even called in yet but really (laughs) it's that's like the stupidest thing in the world to complain about you know it it was really interesting to read his book and then look around at our own systems well when i was in jamaica i so i went and saw the nurse right away and i asked well it probably was a couple days but we asked her about the hospitals and they said they don't have a hospital in every parish which is like Mm -hmm. every state and the closest hospital to us would be two hours away and then I was reading that they there may or may not be an ambulance available and Mm -hmm. and so it's but then they do have public hospitals which is interesting public versus private hospitals but anyhow their their healthcare system is nowhere near as sophisticated as ours so i didn't want to do anything risky there because (laughs) (laughs) you know we we, our healthcare system's terrible and we know it but at the same time it's we don't even understand what some of these other countries are dealing with in terms of their resources healthcare systems analysis is really fascinating and I, and I worked with it a little bit in my master's program and there was another master's program. So I went to Queen Mary University of London, shout out uh, <laughs> for my master's and yay. And uh, there was a health systems master's that was going on at the same time. There was a lot of overlap in the classes and it is really, really interesting comparing and then analyzing why the system has built up the way that it is. And a lot of the systems in, so I worked in Africa for a long time, as I said, and a lot of the systems there and in the Middle East were based on on the UK system because of colonialism and imperialism and all of those awful isms that we are trying to now recover from. Uh, but but yeah, it's basically a lot of the healthcare systems in under-resourced countries are Britain pre-NHS, so Britain in 1930, shall we say. And that, that's certainly how maternity care looks in those environments and and it's not pretty it's absolutely not pretty so one of the things that we work with very very intensely with our volunteers and in our pre-training program is how to inject compassion into every single move that you make like every you are walking compassion when you work for me that it's it's not negotiable because everything is based on that right you can get away with a lot if you feel that your provider loves you and respects you you're going to give a lot of leeway there. And I think oh, there's so much research much. on this. Mm-hmm. There's so much research on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, absolutely. I mean, even if you make a mistake, but you're compassionate, yeah. you know, the outcome may yeah. not be as bad. Uh, exactly. Their relationship's exactly. better. It's they're magic, more likely to. Right? Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's absolutely incredible. magic that we can have, that our emotions and our psychological state can affect an unborn baby's health. That's crazy talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but it is. And that's, that's what we do. We absolutely demand respect for these women, particularly what they've gone through. But, but all women, all women across, across the world. I'm looking at the, um, at the returns coming in from Ireland with the repeal uh, eight that's been going on in the past day or two where they're repealing their abortions and their abortion bans. And it's, 
Yes. I, I thought that was amazing. Oh. I've been watching that too, and seeing the I've been following it on the the home to vote Twitter tag, mm-hmm. and oh, all these people who I are going home cry, to vote, right? <laughs> and then there are people who are saying like, there are people who have been out of Ireland for long enough that they can't vote, but they are paying for citizens who could vote they're buying their plane ticket so they're saying look i can't oh go home i to hadn't vote. heard that oh isn't my that God, beautiful and so they said i'm going to cry i'll find That's the amazing. i'll find the article and i'll post this will be in the show notes too but they so they are saying you know what i can't do it but who can and i will buy your plane ticket so that you can go home to vote mm-hmm. and it's like oh. a landslide mm-hmm. of yes votes which is amazing and it was like this great article the the one that i'm going to post talks about how she traveled so that for all the hundreds of thousands of women that had to travel before her. So all these women who had to travel at the last oh, minute to seek abortion care. Yeah. And so she's UK. like, I Absolutely. can, I can fly over. I, I, you know, I can make this trip to prevent other people from having to make this trip in the future. And in honor of those that did in the past, it was, it was wonderful. So I will be sure to post that in the, in the show notes as well. When women come together, we're unstoppable. And I think that that's really shown in the Yazidi population. They're marginalized to begin with. They've been completely oppressed for literally millennia, which is weird to us mm-hmm. in the West to think about millennia's worth of oppression. And yet they're, they're still getting on with it. And they're still open and, and their hearts are open and they want to love their children and bear their children in safety and love. And how can you not support that? I mean, that's, that's what it is, right? And they have... the Again, reproductive choice is the most important thing. They also have the ability not to bear those children if they wish to. And if that's the most important thing to them, that's fantastic as well. We really can't be stopped. We just need to tap into our power. I really and I really feel like I was talking to a friend of mine who texted me and said, you know, that she's she's like, am I going crazy? I just feel like we're on the on the verge of you know another Hitler like she's so she's like this is crazy and I'm like no it is crazy and he said but here are yes. like I started listing here's all the things that give me hope and all the things that 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 make me hopeful that that's not going to be the the case and all the ways I see women all of a sudden like I had never been in a protest march mm. ever in my life and we did the gun march and I did the women's march and I would never have done that I would never and so I was and I was saying that one of the things too is that um even this podcast is one little voice out there to say we are just to share our experiences as women. And I would not have done it, I don't think, without this current climate, because like, oh, that's going to be extra time and energy. And I love podcasts. I always wanted to do it, but it really sort of almost fired something up like, OK, I am going to make my voice heard and I'm going to share my opinions. I'm going to make other I'm going to elevate other women's voices, which is why I'm so excited that we got you to call in and do an interview with us because I want to elevate other women as well in whatever little way that I can. And, you know, it, I am so much more politically, politically knowledgeable than I would have been mm-hmm. if Hillary had won. And I, and that sounds almost terrible, but I like it. it's almost like a... I, and I don't know if I read somebody who called it like a booster shot for democracy, like because it's activating people. And when you look at these early primaries and these early returns and it's women are winning everywhere and yes. women of color yes. are winning. And I just have this like this. That's what that's what helps me get up every morning and feel like we will we will beat this. We will get through this. And, you know, we have to just keep charging through. But if if women were in charge, everything would be awesome. 
So we just have to get <laughs> it there. It would be a very different place, definitely. It would definitely yes. be different. And and I that's I'm I'm on the same page with you in that I want to elevate the Yazidis voice and I want to elevate our community in Uganda's voices. Like these are people that we don't hear from. As you said, you hadn't heard of the Yazidi. And and they, right. they've been they're one of the oldest oldest ethnic groups in in the world like since the beginning of creation they've basically been there i mean they're extraordinarily rooted in this place and and no one's ever even heard of them so we'll just change that because that's ridiculous obviously so this is one little voice out there to help Mm -hmm. change that um so we so we always end with with a favorite thing so do you have what is one of your favorite things and it can be anything like an experience it can be you know one of your favorite things in Iraq or one of your favorite things as a midwife? Uh, you know, I'm going to go a bit off the rails here, I think. Oh, good. Um, I'm going to talk. <laughs> so <laughs> my favorite superhero is is Iron Man. I, I adore mm-hmm. Iron Man, and I, I won't give any spoilers for Infinity War in case anybody hasn't seen it yet. But what I really like about the character and I really like about Tony Stark is that he tends to do either – the right things for the wrong reasons or, or the opposite. So he either has, has good reasons or bad reasons, but he just tends to power through. And, and I really think that one of the other things I admire about him is he's constantly reflecting on his own experiences and what he's done and what the implications of his actions are. And I'm a huge geek in case that didn't uh, come through. <laughs> but, uh, but I really think that we could take a lesson from that, that we look at our actions, we look at the consequences of our actions, and then we either say, yeah, that's good, carry on, or we change them. And maybe we change them wrongly, but we, that reflection is the important part. And that's what I would like to, like to integrate even more into my own life. I'm constantly looking at what we're doing, constantly making sure that we're putting other people first, putting the Yazidi first over us. This isn't about Global Motherhood Initiative. It's about the people that we serve. So that's where my where my passion I think that's, is, and that's where where it lies. I think so, that's yay, ab- Iron absolutely Man? great. <laughs> yay, yay, Iron, Iron Man! Do you, now here's this is gonna be like the are there movies in Iraq? Um, there is one theater that's close to me, and I can't wait to like go watch Infinity War dubbed. That'll be amazing, dubbed into Kurdish. <laughs> It'll be so great. <laughs> It's just one of those things that you're saying that I was like, wow, I wonder if she's going to be able to see movies because it really is that vision of not a place that you would consider there to be a movie theater. Kind of. Right. Yeah, all I can picture is it's there's roads and Iraq was a developed, that's that's the thing. I'd never been there before, as I said before last year. It's not like when I work in Africa where it's an under-resourced nation. It's always been an under-resourced nation. There's reasons for that. We're trying to change that. It's not out in the, so our, our project in Uganda is way in the bush, way rural. Uh, and we're partnered there with an organization called Mother Health International, which is a fantastic organization. And we are extraordinarily rural, working with South Sudanese refugees in the local communities. It's very different from Iraq. Iraq was a thriving, first world, developed nation. And now it just had a bit of conflict. So it will it'll be okay again. It'll it'll get there again. At some point, I will be able to use an ATM and expect money to come out of it. At some point, I will be able to send a letter and expect it to actually get where it's supposed to go. None of that stuff is happening now. But it will. Wow. I have hope. Do you have cell phone reception over there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Well, what's, we have WhatsApp. Uh, we, use, we use WhatsApp almost entirely. Uh, there's usually Wi-Fi in my 
flat. There's a lot of intermittent electricity situations. But I guess and I'm used to working in Africa. So, I mean, I'm just excited there's electricity at all. And a toilet. There's a Western toilet. That's exciting to me. Because <laughs> wow. I'm getting older. I can't squat the way I used to. <laughs> so. It's all about the toilets, isn't it? Always. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so my favorite thing is kind of, it's in line with, with your story, but it's a children's book. And it's What Do You Do With an Idea? Have you ever read it? No, I haven't. No, what do you I do? want to. Oh, it's so great. What Do You Do With an Idea? Kobe Yamada. And um, it's all about this little boy who has an idea and it follows him and then he's uncomfortable about it and he's worried about what people might think about it. And and finally he embraces the idea and then the idea is everywhere and the final page is um, what you do with an idea is you change the world. So, oh, I love it. I read this book at my son's school this week and at the end I asked the kids if, the, if any of them had, had any ideas and the first little girl raised her hand and she goes, I had an idea last night that everyone would be kind to each other and that would really change the world. Aww. And it was so That's sweet. Pretty much it. <laughs> yes. That's it. <laughs> I know the teacher and I were both said, yes, yeah. Exactly. That's pretty much all it would take. It really would change the world. So yeah. anyway, it's a it's a great book. So my favorite thing is throwing back to when I had little babies and toddlers, but it kind of tied in with thinking about your mission. And it's the thing that I give to expectant parents when they're first time expectant parents. And it is the nose Frida. Do, oh, do you have a nose Frida? Do you have one, Kelly? I think I did the Yes, the little snot sucker. I didn't love it though. I love that thing. And I would give it and I will give it to people and it's funny because I'll give it to them and they'll read it and they'll be like, uh, this is disgusting. And I'm like, no. So my thing is that when you are in charge of blowing someone else's nose, you want it to be as quick and efficient as possible. And so I would point out like it has and so the nose Frida is for those listening who don't know it, it's like a little tube with like a long flexible straw attached to it and there's a foam filter and you suck the boogers out of your kid's nose by putting the heart into their nose and sucking on the straw and it works amazing okay i I don't have that oh you don't know oh it was a that's disgusting she was a nurse and she thinks that's disgusting i don't my you know all nurses have their weakness what do you have a weakness absolutely yeah absolutely mine mine is vomit i don't love the smell of vomit at all i have to breathe through my nose all the time when people are vomiting yeah, so mine's phlegm, sputum. I I can't. One time I gagged in front of the patient because I was supposed to be collecting a sputum sample, and I almost vomited as I was doing it. And there was a tech in the room with me, and she goes, "Oh my, do you want me to do it?" And I said, "Yes," because I I honestly almost vomited. I do not do sputum at all. Well, I was yeah, in charge of burgers, and Dave was in charge of puke, so I did that. And but also, <laughs> so I give it to them. I say, "Fine, you know, you, maybe you'll never use it." However, we also used it one time. Um, one of my daughters stuffed a pom pom up her nose. And we could look up and see this orange pom-pom up there. And I was like, I'm getting the nose Frida. And we sucked it right out with the nose Frida. So I give there it to them and go. say, I said, so fine. If you don't want to use it for burgers, one day they're going to put something in their nose. Yeah. And you're going to want to not go to the ER to figure out how to get it out. So yeah, you can save your $500 copay and or whatever. Honestly, to a person, when I give that, by about six months, I get a text or I get an email. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, okay, you were right. That thing was awesome. Because their baby is so... <laughs> Un- inconsolable and can't breathe and snotty and the little bulb is useless 
and they just can't. So finally they say, it's 3 a.m. I'm going for it. And then suck, suck, two <laughs> seconds. It's done. Their baby can breathe. Everyone's asleep. Everyone's happy. So my favorite thing is a nose free. I'm all, like, I'm almost sad that my children have outgrown it. I threw it out a couple months ago. Yes, I do not want to see you sucking your children's noses at this age without Frida. <laughs> yeah, they probably wouldn't 12. enjoy that very much. <laughs> no. Come here, Willa. <laughs> Got something for you. I'm going to take care of that snotty nose. So if people want to... Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. If people want to support Global Motherhood Initiative, how can they do that? So is it is is the best option cash cash money? The best option is cash money, unless you're a midwife or a psychotherapist. In which case, I'd love to speak with you. Okay. Um, but yeah, honestly, it sounds so boring, right? But but money is the best way. I like to buy all of our supplies on the economy while we're there. Also, mm-hmm. just plugging money into the Iraqi economy to get it built back up where it should be is really important to me. So it's not just the mothers, it's the shopkeepers and the guy that owns the, the chemist shop and all of this. So uh, yeah, money is good. I know it's boring and pedestrian, but... Please. Well, that's the, that's the case, too. I mean, you hear that with people do these food drives and try to make it meaningful by having to bring in a can of soup. But if you had just given them mm-hmm. if you five bucks, they can buy so many meals with five dollars. Oh, and yeah. this, the can of soup. Our, our food, Good Shepherd Food Bank. I don't know if this is national or this is just our local, but um, the food that the pantries can get from Good Shepherd is actually really high quality food. I think they say they pay 30 cents a pound for it. So your dollar mm. goes 10 times as far than they can get organic so carrots, yeah. apples. Then if you just give them all the food you don't want to eat. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what people usually I mean, do. Like I've had the stewed tomatoes in my cupboard. <laughs> yeah. Rice aroni. Here you go. That's lovely. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. So can so are you able to is- donate from your website? Yeah, we, totally. Absolutely. Okay. So it's uh, www.globalmotherhoodinitiative.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other part is when people give in-kind donations, so, so donations that are things, somehow I have to get them there. And that's quite quite yeah. an undertaking sometimes. So because we don't live in the capital, you know, we don't live in Baghdad or Erbil. We live kind of a bit further out. It's There's no mail. So it's, it's a thing. Money's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, Thank you so much for yes. giving us. We've been talking for over an hour now and it's been fascinating. And I wish you were on the East Coast because we could, the three of us could seriously have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> More Wouldn't like for a day. Fun? You know, come, come do a site visit. Come out to Iraq, see what it's like. Um, I, I love to host <laughs> uh, citizen journalists and it would be amazing. So don't, don't just laugh and forget it. You can, it's available. It's there. Come, come to Iraq. <laughs> so, I, I, when, you when you so first much, started though. talking... When we first started talking, I thought, ooh, this would be a great place to bring the nursing students. But then I quickly yes. realized the risk management department would say. Of the university. Oh, uh, you're day, isn't it? definitely <laughs> not bringing nursing students to Iraq. Nice try, though. <laughs> I know. I know. Maybe in a, in a year or two when things are a bit more stable, we, we can have a chat. But I'm, I'm aware. But yeah. But it is fantastic. The Iraqi people are amazing. The Kurds are own a piece of my heart like they just take up residence in my chest so there you go thank you so much ladies i've had such a lovely time speaking with you yes i hope you have a safe journey and i and i'm not sure if we are facebook friends we're in the same group but i might add you just i do access are you able to access facebook when you're over there yeah 
Yeah, I am. So and you can so I'm so I'm gonna if I'm if we're not already I'm gonna make sure that we are because now I'm now I'm invested. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna add ah, you to perfect. It. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll show you all the, the fantastic Yazidi people and all the fantastic archaeological sites and just why everyone should come to Iraqi Kurdistan on their holiday. all right well thank you so much if you have enjoyed listening to balancing chaos please tell two friends and you can always uh, leave us a review on itunes or stitcher and jane directa thank you and i hope you have a safe trip and we'll talk to you next week bye bye